0: Welcome to the Spurs Son podcast. My name's Sophie, and I'm here with Robin Browning, our artistic director and conductor of the orchestra. Um, going to ask a few quick questions, mostly about your career and the direction that Son is going in at the moment. Um, for simply for the first, why why conducting as opposed to being a musician? Obviously, it takes a lot of interpretation of music. It's a, arguably a bigger job. Why um why that
1: um. Well, I guess, why conducting as opposed to being a musician? I think there are quite a lot of people out there who would agree with you that conducting isn't so much about being a musician, but not wishing to start off being too controversial. Of course, conductors should be musicians. <laughs> it's not They're not mutually exclusive, uh, or they shouldn't be, although you could be forgiven for thinking so in certain examples. Um, I mean, I started life as a violinist, and I taught myself the piano badly. I never had a piano lesson properly. Uh, It's a bit of a shambolic life as a pianist but it kind of introduced me to harmony it introduced me to um, the way that music is structured and as a young teenager I was writing pop songs and I was getting to know harmony and then quite soon that broadened into trying to explore uh, the violin music that I was learning and trying to understand its harmony and its rhythmical structures and then understanding Bach and then understanding more harmony and I think that inevitably I got drawn towards uh, conducting as a way of, uh, this is going to sound dreadfully pretentious, but I'm going to say it anyway. As a way of deepening my already existing connection with the what I would see as the 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 the, 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 the more important elements of music, harmony, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as an orchestral player, I loved playing in orchestras. I still do, or if I did, I still would. I I don't anymore, but I, I, I used to enjoy playing up to orchestras in in, in orchestras up until. Uh, when I uh, had to had to had to stop because of my conducting career um and I love the sound of orchestras large and small almost regardless of the repertoire um and I just wanted to stand in front of one I think that's the best way of putting it and I started to do that and I think that I just wonder if when I was a youngster I found the violin um for me personally, probably because I wasn't terribly good at it technically, not good enough anyway, I wonder if I found it a bit limiting.
0: Mm.
1: I wonder if I found myself technically limited, you know, yeah. and I wonder if I wanted to explore things on a, with a wider palette, you know. And I was never a good enough pianist to be able to explore all those wonderful colours and harmonies that I could feel and I could hear and I could imagine, but I couldn't play. And I, I, I wonder if that was what drew me to it as well. So I yeah. think there's all sorts of reasons why I became a conductor but that's that's certainly a, a handful of them.
0: Yeah. You talk a lot about your connection with harmonies and how much you enjoy that aspect of music and obviously Bach is a big name in uh, in that sense especially but a lot of the the music that Son are doing this season with the reimagination recomposed theme is um doesn't have quite a traditional approach to harmony as it were. I mean a lot of Richter's work is quite minimalist. Why have you chosen these works it's as opposed to the traditional like, bark. I,
1: I think I think I can answer that by saying a number of different things. I think, firstly, I wanted SON from the very beginning, and I still want SON to do something a little bit different because, of course, there are loads of orchestras around. There are loads of orchestras in the south of England. There's, there's no professional orchestra in Southampton other than SON, although there are plenty of other, some very good other orchestras, non-professional orchestras in and around Southampton. There's the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra just down the road. There's a lot of music-making around. And whilst I, decidedly determined not to set Son up in London, where there is a strong uh, possibility it would have just disappeared into a large pool overnight, um, and 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 we can, in a way, we've therefore got a bit more freedom down in Southampton. We don't have to be seen to be doing something, determinately different or or or, or cutting edge, or, or we don't have to reinvent the wheel necessarily. Having said all that, I do want to be doing something that is a bit new, that is yeah. a bit different, that it's got a concert format that's a little bit unusual um, or that's presenting music in a slightly different fashion. The last concert with the Vivaldi Four Seasons, pairing it and coupling it with Piazzolla. And uh, I think that was an incredible combination. Oh, it was. Uh, it was such a good concert. It was, such, it was <laughs> an incredible concert. And of course, the audience reaction uh, showed that instantaneously Mm -hmm. that they were carried along with with us on stage and and, and what an extraordinary just experience that was from beginning to end and that was largely to do with the juxtaposition of those two composers Vivaldi and Piazzolla's uh, take on things and I think with Reimagined Recomposed I wanted to explore further and so there's that connection of the Vivaldi Four Seasons throughout uh, the the, well with that little series so the Vivaldi we've just done Mm -hmm. coupled with the Max Richter Four Seasons Recomposed that we're performing in April in Turner Sims, um, which is a totally different slant on Vivaldi, a totally different idea about how you interpret or reinterpret old music or pre-existing music. Um, And I've always, I think, been... A keen minimalist myself, I've yeah. always been really drawn to that kind of style. Whether it's those kind of repetitive sequences or loops or trance-like episodes, I, you know, this goes back to my previous answer about why I became a conductor and my love of harmony. I think that one of the reasons I love minimalism is that I love to kind of, when I get into a certain pool of water, I I, I just adore swimming in it for a while mm. longer. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to minimalism. I think a lot of other conductors, a lot of other musicians um, want to move from one pool to another Mm -hmm. to continue the aquatic analogy. They they don't (laughs) want to keep repeating the same uh pairs of chords or the same sequences but i think what richter does is of course it's kind of not strictly minimalism it's what you'd the horrible term you'd call post minimalism mm-hmm. it's now the kind of minimalism that that people are writing after minimalism which is all some nonsense bunkum but basically i think he's got a lot more freedom uh to compose uh in his style than perhaps he might have done had he been a minimalist in the 70s um arguably and I think that there's a there's a real beauty to his sound, you know. He repeats these structures, these chords, and they revolve around one another, and they kind of come back on each other like a kind of like a bell tower ringing. It's mm. its, it's it's sequence going out of phase and coming back in, um, and 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 but there's just he never loses this extraordinarily. In, in, in engaging sound that he makes, I don't know quite what it is. There's a kind of melancholic sound mm. to his uh, to his style that I find really engaging. And apart from anything else, as well, I'm just really fascinated by how composers compose, yeah. and I want the audience. To be fascinated by how composers compose not the you know the nitty-gritty you know well I write 15 quavers before breakfast and then after <laughs> after lunch I rub four of them out again and <laughs> yeah, rush it I, I, I I'm really fascinated by how composers compose and not least I'm as fascinated by how new composers are recomposing yeah and I think it's a really fascinating exploration they're reimagining uh, and they're recomposing, which is where we got the name of this series of concerts from. Taking pre-existing style, a pre-existing piece, and putting it into a new format or a new mm-hmm. setting or a, or a new a new sound world, a new piece of music. Literally.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, Richter is incredibly new. He's literally the Four Seasons were debuted in twenty twelve, which is is not all that long ago at all. Yeah, yeah, just um,
1: a little over four years ago, I think, yeah. They debuted. They, um,
0: yeah. Arguably, this is quite contrasting to our concert in Romsey Abbey, which is um, Vaughan Williams' um, variations on Thomas Tallis.
1: Yeah, Fantasia on Thomas Mm -hmm. Tallis. Yeah, we're also going to have a Beethoven symphony in there, but I'm just still waiting to hear back from some of the other people that I'm in a dialogue with about exactly what's going to fill up that programme. So I don't want to go announcing anything just now because we're just waiting to hear from things. But it's going to be another Beethoven symphony um, that's going to go into the second half. And in the first half, um, along with the solo item, Mm. yet to be confirmed we're going to perform the Vaughan Williams fantasia on uh, theme of Thomas Tallis which of course is another reimagining is, is another yeah. recomposing uh, quite i mean a lot of people would argue much less sophisticatedly in terms of a reimagination it it really is a free fantasia on something very simple mm. by Thomas Tallis but it still fits into that category of something of a kind of reimagining uh, and of course uh, it'll it'll show our strings off in an extraordinary oh, yeah. setting in in you know one of one of the Souths, let alone Hampshire's most extraordinary acoustics and most gorgeous buildings in mm. Romsey Abbey, where we'll be able to play with the space a little bit. You know we'll be able to have the second orchestra within reason where we please, uh, as long as they're happy being there. <laughs> we can we can really create some space. And, and, and enhance the, the the you know the, the acoustic drama of, the, of, the, of that building so yeah and i can't wait to perform that piece in there i think it'll 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 look amazing let alone sound amazing
0: yeah absolutely um son obviously is really really focused on education of all descriptions um are you choosing these pieces to say encourage a younger audience of possibly people my age new musicians or are you just trying to are you trying to re-educate the older audience that you inevitably get with classical music
1: I, well, I'd be careful of the word re-educate or educate at all. I mean, I've, of course, you're talking about, you know, eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds, and I guess education is, is, is the correct word. But I'd, I'd be wary of using that word for anybody that's above a kind of school age, because I think I think one of the big problems that classical music as an industry as as a, as, a, as an art form as well as an industry has suffered for decades and is only beginning slowly far too late to wake up to the problem is that we've 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 either patronized our audience mm. or we've or, or we've kind of kept them too much at arm's length uh, we've not worked alongside the audience we've not become the audience ourselves I'm not suggesting that you know we should have performers you know lurking around amongst all the, all the audience unless the piece calls for it. And we shouldn't have the audience milling around amongst the orchestra unless the piece calls for it. But I think there's for for years for centuries there's been too much of a them and us
0: mm-hmm. uh, a,
1: approach. Having said all that, I'm wary that one of the ways to not get across the extraordinary nature of classical music or mainstream um, serious music. Uh, to the to, to audiences is to, is is to dumb it down,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, or water it down. I, I I think that I think that there are barriers to be broken down with with per classical performers and their audiences, whether they're in person in a concert hall or in a in a on an oil rig or heaven knows where you perform or online via yeah. live streaming. I think there are massive barriers to break down still today, and I think it's ridiculous that as arts organisations, classical music. Ensembles and orchestras and groups are still not connecting enough with their audiences. But I, I, despite having the need to break down those barriers, I also think that a lot of people are in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is a horrible phrase, but you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And they kind of, they're dumbing down. They're just trying to, or they're trying to just, just, you know, trying to water down the the, the message, trying to water down the music. And, you know, one of my deeply felt feelings is that, extraordinary music or great music is extraordinary Mm -hmm. Uh, no matter who the audience is and in a way no matter who's performing it because the music is still extraordinary. You don't have to surround it with dry ice and flashing lights and comfy seats and a a, a virtual reality experience and put a GoPro on the end of the conductor's baton. All those things can or may not be good or great or helpful or a hindrance. It doesn't really matter. The music is great Mm -hmm. if it's great music. If it's bad music, it's bad music. And I think if people dumb down good music, let alone great music, it becomes a problem because... You know, I'm not suggesting that a nine-year-old child should be exposed to an entire Mahler symphony, let alone be expected to appreciate it or, heaven forbid, understand it or or like it. But I think that there are ways of showing the audience and of telling the audience, Mm -hmm. and and I'm trying not to use the word educating the audience, which goes back to your question. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: There are ways of showing the audience what great, music there is out there even if some of it's one minute long or or, or 71 minutes long what well, great music there is out there and if you want to go a bit further how it's constructed yeah. or why it's constructed or why the composer wrote what he or she did when he or she was composing it why they chose that chord why they chose that rhythm or why they put the movements in that order why does this little bit happened in this piece of Sibelius why does this little bit happen in this piece of, 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 of Elgar? Mm-hmm. Why does this little... Why, why... What do these things mean here? Yeah. This is what they sound like, but why do they sound like that? You know, there's so many ways of getting the message of great art across to audiences, without dumbing down and patronising, mm-hmm. and without trying to, you know, big inverted commas, educate them, of just making people feel, wow, that's why it happens. I've not been talked down to. Now I want to hear more. Now I want yeah. to hear the whole piece. You know what? Now I want to hear all the other symphonies. Now I want to hear all the other pieces that Schumann wrote uh, in, in, in that decade of the 19th century. Now I want to hear what Clara Schumann wrote, etc., etc., etc. Opening. I think one of the great things is that e- even for youngsters, for, for, for children, but particularly for, for adults, I want to leave people with more questions. Not Absolutely. to have, not, I, not necessarily to answer their questions. Mm. I, peop, I want people to walk away from our concerts and our experiences with more questions, yes. actually. Filled with more questions. Not, not, not having felt like they've had all their questions answered. I want them to feel that they've had all their questions answered, yet they've got now 20 times as many questions <laughs> to ask, ask again. And they'll have to come to future concerts yes. maybe to find out. <laughs> and so it goes on. But that's the great richness of our life. Mm. Yeah.
0: I mean, that leads us on very nicely to talking about uh, Elgar Unwrapped Concert. Mm. Um, You described this as uh, the central thread, as it were, to the song concert programme. I mean, obviously we've done Sibelius and we've done the Eroica Symphony. Um, But Elgar, I mean, his Enigma variations are known the world over, backwards, Mm, forwards. mm, mm. And um, obviously there's that really famous interpretation by Bernstein where he took it half pace and everyone was in uproar about it. How... Is Son's interpretation of the piece going to be different, reimagined, as it were? Um, is it going to be bringing something new to the audience?
1: Well, partly, I mean, we have, uh, well, there's a number of reasons why, yes, in a way. Uh, partly it's an unwrapped concert. So as mm-hmm. you just said, you know, our launch concert with Sibelius unwrapped, where we unwrapped uh, various pieces of Sibelius, including the Volstriest and the Pellis Millisande, with David Owen Norris, yeah. and then Heroic unwrapped with John Suchet um both of them fascinating insights into the composer the composer's mind the composer's position in history the composer's position in his oeuvre uh around about the time that he wrote the music uh, and 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 all, all the rest of it and then a complete performance in the second half this concert elgar unwrapped is no different we have a first mm. half where we're going to be pulling things apart with david owen norris who we're welcoming back to turner Sims. Um, for this one, which incidentally, by the way, is only a matter of two days or three days—I forget which—after what would have been Elgar's 160th birthday. Yes, I
0: saw that. Which is
1: a brilliant bit of timing yeah, yeah. as well. Of course, all, all, all kind of like a, some celestial alignment going on there. <laughs> it's all completely planned, of course. Of, course, of um, course. So we're welcoming back David Owen Norris, who is, you know, David
0: is a fantastic.
1: Yeah, he was fantastic for the Sibelius. He's fantastic with everything. It doesn't—it doesn't matter if he's playing Sterndale Bennett or you know or, or, or Sibelius or talking about Rossini uh, he's engaging he's in, he, he's involving he has this way of bringing you into his world which can be as as, 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 as you know highbrow as you want it to be yet also can be you, you, anybody of any level of musical experience can learn from David um, and but anyway he's a I you know he's renowned as a bit of an Elgarian yeah. He loves his Elgar, Um, big connections with David O'Norris and the the Elgar Piano Concerto that he unearthed uh, very successfully and famously uh, last decade, I forget when. I forget the details of that. But anyway, in this concert, so David's involved and we're unwrapping things. So that's a little bit different. Um, The other thing, of course, is that we're performing as a chamber orchestra and we're performing Mm. two... uh, Well, yes, orchestrations is the correct word, by a composer, conductor and an arranger called George Morton, um, who I've actually never met, but I've uh, had a number of exchanges Mm -hmm. um, um, online with him and I know his work very well. Um, And the proof of the pudding, as it were, is, is, is certainly in his work. He came up with a chamber orchestra orchestration of the Enigma Variations. I forget when. Um, very recently, though, within the last year or two or three. And we're performing that version. And um, I've persuaded him to um, work on a new commission that Son have commissioned from him of the um, Pomp and Circumstance March Number 4, ah. which <laughs> is going to open our little concert. So these two little things are going to be... Uh, well, they're not so little, are they, either? of them? But <laughs> uh, they're littler than Elgar... Wrote them. Mm. In other words, Elgar wrote for, for for large scale symphony orchestra, and we're performing as a chamber orchestra, um, and they're going to be incredibly successful as pieces standing on their own because it's a. I mean, apart from anything else, it's it's still Elgar, but of course it's it's cast in slightly different bottles, as it were. But George is a real master of 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 of, of manipulating those colours, mm-hmm. um, of playing around with those voicings and and recasting what Elgar would have, uh, you know, what Elgar was looking for um, with smaller voices. And David Owen Norris is going to bring his um, slant to things. And David and I will be working together to present extracts and little diversions and dialogues about all sorts of music there. Plus, we'll be able to squeeze in some other little moments of Elgar. I want to go a little bit mad about the harmony because there's something about going back to the start of this uh, discussion yeah. with you, Sophie. I was talking about harmony and there's something even Elgar, of course, is is certainly not a minimalist composer. Mm. But there's something about the harmonies in Elgar that I think are untouched by virtually every uh, other tonal composer there's something melancholic in the harmonies sometimes you can find things that go on there's a there's a harmonic sequence in the late piano quartet that I'd love to talk to David Owen Norris about and and bring out because if he's on stage with a few of our string players then it's possible we can we can discuss what makes Elgar Elgar you know what makes Elgar uh, yes sometimes incredibly uplifting sometimes very nationalistic or is that just because you know Various aspects of have of, of hijacked his music over the last century and a bit. Um, what makes Elgar's music so rhythmical? What makes Elgar's music so melancholic? Sometimes, not a million miles in that regard from Max Richter. Strangely, no. maybe there's a melancholic vibe going through our season. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that that says more about me and my my psyche than uh, than just, anything to do with song.
0: Just very deeply emotional people, obviously. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I uh, and so, and I guess the other thing is. You know My interpretation of Enigma, um, I've never conducted this this uh, new version by George mm. Morden before, but I've conducted the piece many, many times, although not for a while, actually. I've been giving it a bit of a rest, which is no bad thing. Um, I can't wait to get back to it, and I can't wait to get my hands on um, this version and to see where it goes and where, where I end up with it, where we end up with it. But it's a piece that, you know, I, I love Bernstein, and I love... Bernstein's energy and his—I mean—in the widest sense and his approach to things, but no, I don't agree with a six and a half minute Nimrod. No, uh, not at all. <laughs> and you know, I think that if you listen to some of these composers and their own performances and recordings, there's a there's a few of Elgar's uh, Enigmas. You know, there's 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 this there's, there's, there's Holst on record, there's Strauss on mm. record, there's there's many many examples of you know composers from the first half of the twentieth century um putting their things down on on record mm. it's not just that you know the records would play so quickly at 78 rpm and you'd, you know the side would be over quickly that meant that they would go at a certain speed you know mm. it's quite clear that elgar didn't envisage nimrod as being that slow yeah. it's not that slow i mean it is slow but it's not That's that right. slow But there's, you know, there are colours in there, there are characters in there, there are, there's humour, an enormous amount of humour, um incredible amount of humor there's so much vitality there's so much rhythm there's so much energy that's before you even get to that melancholic side of elgar and then you've got the finale which you know is it representing elgar himself or is it representing elgar himself is that just a is that just a superficial take on it is it really representing something deeper more significant and then of course you've got the eternal conundrum and i'm wondering what david and i will (sighs) will work out when it comes to june the fourth about this about the enigma Theme, the theme of Elgar's enigma, of course, is alleged by Elgar to be a, a, a variation on, a, on another theme that mm. nobody knows what it is or was, hence the word enigma. And there have been many theories and posits about, you know, was it this and was it that? And uh, my money's a little bit on uh, that. Well, there's a Mozart symphony. I think it's 39. That could be quite a contender in there. But there are many, many ideas and theories. Maybe that was Elgar playing jokes with us all.
0: <laughs> I don't know.
1: Maybe. Who knows? You'll have to come on June the fourth and find out. See what the latest bit of musical scholarship <laughs> is about. What the what that theme was in fact a variation on. Who knows.
0: Looking forward to it. Anyway, um, just to finish off, um, we've got a question from LWH Music Therapy, and I mean we've spoken quite a lot about this already in the interview. But um, how how do you keep classical standards fresh, Robin?
1: Well, I'm not sure if that question is talking about the standards of music making or standards as in a jazz standard, as in, <laughs> uh, you know, the, um, the 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 Beethoven 5s and the Mozart 40s <laughs> and the Rachmaninoff 2nd piano concertos. Let me try and answer both. Um, I mean, I think that all classical musicians, all serious professional musicians, I mean, they can be jazz musicians, rock musicians, electronic composers, whatever. I think all professional musicians... Strive to maintain excellence at every single point in their mm. lives you don 't get to become a professional performer unless you strive for excellence and you have that excellence or the the the, 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 the aim of excellence high performance if at unless you have that kind of instilled in you from an early age, which is nearly always you you, you start to realize what that level of attainment is and that level of 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 working at is before your age is even in double figures and I think that never leaves you it just deepens of course mm. some some musicians become orchestra players some musicians uh, become you know in, in jazz players some become composers some are singers some work on their own um I don't know, a lot of guitarists, a lot of pianists, a lot of composers would do. A lot of people work in collaboration with others, whether they're collaborative musicians or professional community musicians, um, um, jazz musicians, orchestral players, you know, as a violinist, they can be on their own, they can be teaching on their own or with with just one-on-one. They can, all sorts of collaborative possibilities, but but the one connective thing is that they're all trying to work at the top of their game. And the soloists of this world and the great composers of this world uh, and I like to think the conductors of this world should be striving for excellence all the time because it's what we owe our art, which sounds incredibly pretentious but and it's not meant to i mean I think it, you know uh every day as musicians we get to spend we get to spend every single day with genius yes, which is a bit of an old uh, comment that i blatantly stole from somebody else and i can't i can't can't remember who it was but it's true you know we 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 can spend every day in company with i don't know with Liszt, with mozart with haydn with smetana or with with whoever you regard on what what scale of what spectrum of geniusness you know and that's such a such an honor it's a privilege and i think that if if we start to lose our a game then, then, yeah, then, then, then we're not offering our best self to the musical universe. Um, so that's, I think, how how as performers we aim to, to keep our musical standards high. And if if the questioner is asking about, you know, how do we bring our best performances to the musical standards? And I'll interpret that in a horrible way. I'll call it those old <laughs> pop boilers. You know, like the yeah. I don't know, like the Beethoven fives and so on. You know. I, I never, personally, I, I, well, I suppose you could even include Enigma in that. Mm-hmm. I haven't performed it personally for for, for many years, but I, I mean, I was, you know, I can't remember how many performances I've given of it, probably at least 50 yeah. in my life. Um, and I think that the minute you, I mean, it's not like being on the West End stage where you're doing nine performances or eight performances of the same show mm-hmm. day in, day out, twice a day. Um, I think... it's the same kind of approach the minute you lose sight of how blessed you are to be working with that music at that level in that environment then Mm. it's the minute to I think that's the minute to look in the mirror and to think you know why am I doing this what am I what am I bringing to this why am I going on stage or why am I opening this score to prepare it why am I studying this work why am I programming this piece um, and yes, as all performers, we will, we will steer our repertoire choices depending on, uh, on, on where we feel personally we need to go, but where we think the organisation we're working with needs to go. You can't just be like a kid in a sweet shop when you programme music. Mm. No. I think I, uh, you know, you can see people's programming that's a little bit like that, where it looks like a bomb's gone off in a, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a repertoire factory, and so you'll have, you know, some Copland up against some Ramo, and then that that's <laughs> next to, next door to some Dvorak um and then in the second half there's some choir piece Mm. that's you you know and you just kind of think all those four would work but just not together it's like kind of eating the craziest kind of food that doesn't i think we need to give a lot of thought to repertoire um and and but you know i mean there are pieces and composers that i avoid Mm. um i perhaps shouldn't name any in this Interview. <laughs> there are things that I feel like I don't have enough to bring to. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, yeah, I mean, well, for example, not that you've asked, let alone the the, the person asking this question has asked. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Delius, mm-hmm. um, so I don't think, I don't think we're heading for a son. Delius unwrapped <laughs> maybe maybe we should do because it would uh, maybe it would change boundaries. <laughs> my maybe it would, maybe it would change my feelings about Delius a little bit. But and there are some lovely little pieces of Delius and the I quite like and it, it it works for me. But I'm not a big fan of the sound it makes Uh, which sounds really quite (laughs) condescending but it's not meant to so I avoid Delius not because I kind of sit there in a grumpy way when I'm programming and go oh I'm not going to program any Delius but I but because I just know that there are plenty of people out there that love Delius that adore Delius that have plenty of things to bring to Delius that love it and that think I'm a fool (laughs) which I probably am for thinking the way I do and so they um, they and, and I well, great that they, they 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 can do the devious, then yeah, that's great. So the life <laughs> life is in balance. And I and you know, I mean, uh, I suppose just going back to the original question, I think that you know, every time every time we play great music, the the kind of popular standards of, 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 of music, um, we have to bring you know, we have to bring our, our very best mm. game to it when we rehearse it, let alone when we perform it. Um and other, otherwise it becomes one of those dialed-in performances. And, you know, Beethoven's better than that. Yeah, Rag- exactly. Rachmaninoff's better than that. Even Delius is better than that. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Elgar's better than that. Mahler's better than that. Ramo is better mm-hmm. than that. We owe it to these great luminaries of art to, to, to yeah, to... To show their work in the best light,
0: yeah, absolutely. and
1: and I think the minute we take the, our eyes off the ball, then we're we're we we letting down something that's really quite important in our in our in our world in our creative universe.
0: Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Robin.